Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And in this episode, a real treat as my latest guest, the legendary booking agent, Martin Hopewell, a man who was a key part of the Weller setup for 28 years from the jam in 1977 to the Style Council to Paul Weller solo right through to Studio 150. From smaller boutique agency Cowbell through to World Service, which became part of the mega super agency primary talent. They're the people who look after huge artists like Rod Stewart, Brian Ferry, Culture Club, Kylie, along with The Cure and Peter Gabriel, who he still works with to this day. Over the next hour, you're going to hear some amazing stories from the chaos of a punk festival in Paris to life on the road with gigs around the UK and Europe to Japan and Australia and a massive appreciation of Paul's incredible work ethic, something that keeps coming up on this podcast time and time again. We'll also hear about a huge love and appreciation for the Weller family and special memories of John, Paul's dad, and of course, manager. Let's get into it. Martin Hopewell, thanks for joining me. Hello, Dan. That's perfect. You're all right. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you on this because I think it was 28 years as part of the Weller crew. Would that be right, working with those guys? Yeah, it was 28. I think it was 28 years. It would have been nice to have made it to 30, like nice round numbers. Yeah, 28 saw me through um, the jam from the very beginning right through to Paul at his peak doing his solo stuff with a little, the meat in the sandwich being the Style Council, which was fantastic fun, you know. Listen, it was all great, great fun. Most of the stuff that I remember with great affection about working with the Weller family is completely unrepeatable. So it kind of <laughs> with very little to say apart from the really boring stuff, most of which I've forgotten anyway. <laughs> but anyway, you, you ask the questions and I'll tell you what I can. Listen, if I ever wrote what would otherwise be the most boring book in the world, which would be my autobiography, which will never happen, then I think probably 12 out of 13 chapters would be Adventures with the Weller family. And a lot of them are just things that you can't 
repeat. I don't know how litigious Paul would be nowadays, but <laughs> he'd probably love it. But it's probably best to err on the side of caution. But we had a lot of adventures and did a lot of stuff. You know, I'm really proud of the stuff that we did, you know, because a lot of it was, you know, at a time where a lot of the stuff that exists now didn't exist. So the big arenas that people now see big bands in weren't there, particularly in the days of the jam. As it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, we were having to go off and scout around the countryside trying to find equestrian centres or, you know what I mean, ice rinks, whatever, that you could actually board over and do a gig in. So it was all pretty exciting stuff, you know. Yeah, it's true. I hadn't thought of that because now it's like, you know, you're a Google search away from being able to check out the venue, whereas these places, a lot of them weren't music venues. You're having to think about, okay, could that work? Let me go and then actually do a recce and a visit, right? Well, it, well yeah, it was, it was that. I mean, when we started out, I mean, listen, this is, you're talking 45 years ago, which is probably twice as old as most of the people listening to this thing and you know my memory ain't that great and i've never been a particularly good historian you know don't ask me for any gigographies or anything so i haven't got a clue but it's very different when we kicked off in the late 70s in 77 i mean you were pretty well looking at playing the uk you know playing in europe was uh, exotic lands there be dragons and we didn't know quite what to do with them or who was there or what have you so in the uk you were looking at clubs and you were looking at um, college gigs. And then you had a network of um, private promoters who would, for example, in my neck of the woods now, there was a, a chap called Barry Clark. He used to promote at St. Albans City Hall and Dunstable Queensway and Watford, whatever it was, you know, I can't think. And in Nottingham, there'd be somebody else. And so you'd play the gigs where there was some Herbert who was silly enough to put his money down to, to book a rock band, you know. And if that ended up being Chroma, I mean, why Chroma? <laughs> we played a lot of gigs in Chroma. Why <laughs> was that? Because there was a chap there called Frank Boswell who wanted to book us, you know, right. so it, we do that. That's right. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So you're then you're heading up to Norfolk for that. <laughs> That's hilarious. Right. Now we have to kick us off. Really, we should understand when you first got into this this malarkey. Was it 1972 when you first became an agent? Was that right? Oh God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'd been at Reading University, did some events there, then got offered a job working for the Noel Gay organisation, whose star attractions were Dorothy Squires. Jake Thackeray and people who've now disappeared from knowledge, apart from John Cleese, he was there as well. And they wanted us to, uh, me and another chap, to start up a rock department. And that lasted for six whole months before they sacked us. And, uh, <laughs> but we weren't the first. Before that, there was a chap called David Entoven and uh, another chap called Johnny Gaden, who ended up being EG Management, Entoven Gaden, who, en who were managing Roxy Music and T-Rex. And they were, at the time, like the hottest kids on the block. And they lasted about six months as well. So that's fair enough, you know. And how did you get the gig then with Cowbell? So Cowbell, the ones that the jam eventually signed with. I mean, just to briefly say, after I got summarily dismissed as being a useless little oik from the Noel Gay organisation, then eventually I got offered a job at uh, Chrysalis, working in the agency that was run by Kenny Bell and Richard Cowley. For anybody who's interested in agency history, which is about one person probably, and that's, that's me, along with another guy called John Jackson, who went off to make a fortune as a heavy metal agent and doing metallic and ACDC and stuff like that. So we were actually Chrysalis for a while. I think you're right. I think when I bumped into the jam, we were already Cowbell. The most appalling name in the history of music business names, that was my fault. I'd point out that if Chris Wright and Terry Ellis could be Chris Ellis, then if Cowley and Bell ever formed a company, I was joking. 
cowbell. They took it seriously, and we ended up with that name and this stupid fucking logo of a cow with a bell hanging around its neck and a pair of headphones on, looking very stoned, peering over a hedge. And somehow we managed to make a decent agency with that image. (laughs) Well, some really big signings. I mean, you talk about rock like Jethro Tull, um, Proko Haram, Rod Stewart, Brian Ferry, Sex Pistols, Culture Club. I mean, it was different then. Uh, Agency was more boutique than it is now. Now, sadly, the Americans have moved in and gobbled up the entire international business, including the UK one. And you've got these mega agencies uh, with, you know, 500 X on the list. But, you know, at the time, if you looked at our roster, it would be about I don't know, 30, 40, 50 acts maybe. And that was it. The Jam sign in 77. And what was what was your job? What was it that you had to do for them? What do they come to you for? Well, I should tell you, shouldn't I tell you how I bumped into the Jam? Oh, please do. Yeah, go on. That was quite good. You've interviewed Chris Parry. Yeah. So Chris was, uh, at the time, he was like a sort of junior A&R man. And I, he'll deny that, but I think he was. And I was like a junior a- or junior-ish agent, you know. And so we sort of teamed up and gave each other tips and stuff like this. And then when the whole punk thing happened, which none of us, anybody who ever says that they knew it was going to be big is probably telling porcupines because all of us thought it was a bit nutty, but it was working. So the whole business was flying around, walking down Wardour Street, bumping into a punk, you know, can you play anything? (laughs) Yeah, well, okay, I'll sign you up. Chris had, I don't know if you mentioned this, but he'd formed a publishing company with a chap called Brian Morrison. Brian was a great character as well, and he deserves a little part in this story. He was was like an East End boy, cigar-chewing Already a millionaire, he went on later to sign Wham for like nothing and made even more money. And but an adorable character known as Uncle Murray. And um, outside of Chris's stuff with Polydor, they'd formed a publishing company called And Sun Limited. And I think that that's where it came in because I got a call from Chris and from Brian saying, "Oh, we've found this this band. You've got to come see them at the Red Cow in Hammersmith." Now, given that I was a bit of a little tosser back in the day and a bit full of myself, I dutifully turned up at the Red Cow in Hammersmith and found about, you know, 60 in the audience bouncing up and down. And uh, these three guys on the stage with suits that looked as if they'd been bought when they were like five years earlier because they didn't quite fit, you know, <laughs> also bouncing up and down and um, to the strains of the of the theme tune to Batman. <laughs> And I thought, now come on, you're having a laugh. I mean, this is this is just silly. Again, you know, a lot of people would say, oh yes, I saw them, and it was like this blinding light, and I knew that they were going to be immense. Well, I didn't. I, they took me off to Chris and uh, Brian took me off to a local hamburger joint and bought me a hamburger and persuaded me to um, start getting them a few gigs. A couple of months later, after it had all suddenly taken off in the press, I was pursuing John and the three lads around the um, Royal College of Art frantically trying to hand out contracts for them all to sign, which I still have somewhere. You know? and that, that was that. So that, that, that's how I got into it or stumbled into it anyway. Brilliant. 
<laughs> and their, their first gig was a French punk festival, I understand, well, that, that with working with you. Is that right? The first gigs, we were booking them in colleges and clubs. As many gigs as they could possibly fit in, we'd do sometimes we'd double up and we'd do a one show uh, in London, for example, early evening, then race off to um, University of London Union or something and do a, a late night gig or something. They worked like troopers. Unbelievable. Just work, work, work. Do you want to talk about the Mont de Marsan Festival du Punk? <laughs> yes, let's. So this is them, the Stranglers and the Damned on the bill, right? And me, which was a huge mistake. <laughs> it, is, it starts with a food fight. Is that right? Well, there were, there were many food fights, but um, anybody listening, if they ever fancy doing the sort of job that I've been doing for the last 50 years, don't ever, ever go on a trip with a band who are on a, a jet that's been chartered for a whole load of punk bands and everyone's traveling together. I mean, it's just a huge mistake. So I turn up with my nice little neat jacket and my briefcase and my neatly pressed jeans and everything else at the airport. And as you say, you have that load of herbits all piled onto this charter jet, which I think about two minutes after the wheels had gone back up again, somebody was pissed and wanted to fly the plane and was insistent on flying the plane, you know. And then when, of course, they hand the food out, then, of course, it's just all over the walls and all over everybody. And I'm just sitting in my little chair, ducking, trying to stay out the way, you know. The jam were very well behaved, by the way. It was... It, it was, of course, it was the others. No, they, they were. Briefly, you get to the other end, and of course, then there's a coach, which is going to take all the bands all together on one coach, again, a huge mistake, to this little tiny sleepy French village called Mont de Marsan. And again, I'm sitting there with my briefcase and my jacket, trying to stay, keep and keep me as low a profile as possible. I see this um, liquid trickling down between my, my legs from the front of the bus, and someone's had a slash further up the bus, of course, you know. And then I'm sitting there, and Rat Scabies turns up, the drummer with the, the damned, yeah? And he says to the boys in the jam, well, who's this, who's this geezer? And they very politely said, well, he's our agent. He said, uh, I'm going to bite his fucking leg. And the next thing I know, this guy, if you've ever seen his teeth, it's not a pretty sight. It's sunk into my thigh and stayed there. So you kind of start laughing and then you're thinking, well, now what do I do? I've got this drummer's teeth sunk in my thigh. I mean, well, he didn't move. <laughs> it's just he didn't move. He was there for minutes. You know, we arrive in this little tiny village and like a lot of little French villages, you've got the cold streets and the old medieval buildings and stuff. And then you've got the little tiny little um, square. It wasn't a square. It was round, but you know what I mean? Uh, with a fountain in the middle. The jam were the last ones to be dropped off. And that's where the hotel was. So of course, by that time, they had perhaps a little bit too much to drink and headed straight into the fountain, like fully dressed, just straight into the fountain. Probably about a minute later, you hear the police sirens coming. About two minutes after that, the lads have been packed into the back of one of those French police vans with the corrugated iron sides, you know the ones, and roars off down the road with John, John Weller and me, chasing after them, running after them to the local gendarmerie where I had to then drag out my schoolboy French to say, uh, pardon, monsieur, ils sont désolé, and all this stuff. Explain who they were. Meanwhile, they're sitting there looking like three little drowned rats on the, in the police station. <laughs> I think Rick Butler had dyed his hair black and all the black dye was running down his, his face. I mean, it was a sorry sight. <laughs> of course, 
as the history books now tell, they didn't actually end up playing it. Somebody had decided to change the running order. John didn't like that. And I was packed off to tell the promoter, not only were we not going to play, but that we wanted all of our money in cash. And of course, the promoter back in those days, I think he went on to run Virgin Records in France or something. But at the time, it was pretty scary stuff. It was all flick knives. And this guy's sitting behind his desk with a bunch of heavies behind him. And me, I mean, in my early 20s or something, going, oh, excuse me, can we come with our money, please? But we're not paying. That was my experience of the Mont de Marsan Festival. <laughs> Brilliant. I feel like that deserves a round of applause. Did you get paid? Oh, yeah, we got it. Yeah, I, mean, I couldn't believe it. Maybe they took took pity on me, but or I was too little to beat up or something, but um, we got it. But I did see the band Soundcheck there, and I do have a photograph somewhere of them on stage at Mont de Marsan, and the Soundcheck was good. You, nobody ever saw the rest of it. You know? Oh, my God, that's hilarious. Now, we should talk about the band breaking the USA, or not, as the case may be, because there's a lot said about how Paul wasn't really interested in the US, didn't really like being there when sending the jam days, and then famously flying home for when going underground, got to number one to, so they could be on top of the pops and stuff. What was your experience of trying to get them into the US and, and breaking the Yes. Well, very little, because the way it works in the agency world, or at least it certainly did then, is that with a, a band that was based in Europe, or let's say in the UK then, to be honest, they would have a UK agent who would book all of the world apart from the USA and Canada. And that was always historically be the job of an American agent. I had, I think, pointed John and Paul at a chap called Wayne Forte, who's a lovely bloke and is still going. And he was booking them back in those days. All that I got to experience of it was just what you've said, that they really didn't like it. I don't think the Americans ever really got the jam. Their idea of, I hate to use the word punk, but their idea of punk was not our idea of punk, our idea of punk was something far harder edged than just sticking some makeup on and prancing around on the stage with long hair and tight trousers. That's probably unfair of me to say that, but you know what I mean. I think it's probably also fair to say that certainly throughout the Jan's career, there was always this lingering thing from critics that it was too English. You know, that didn't stop the band from doing really well in a lot of places that weren't English. But I think that was probably the problem with America. I'm not one to comment on who Paul Weller is, although I kind of have my own view of it. But American society is not Paul Weller. That's not what I think he's about. And it was never about, oh, we've got to break America to get bigger or anything. Paul wasn't bothered about that sort of stuff, you know. There's a bit in um, Rick Buckler's autobiography where he talks about your side of things being a well-oiled machine. So everything running through you is a well-oiled machine. <laughs> well-oiled is possibly the case, although... <laughs> Well, that's maybe what he meant. No, he was talking about it really being really well organised. Because I think, you know, when the jam finished and he was doing other things, he realised, I guess they'd taken it for granted a little bit, and he realised how slick it was, that operation, you know? I was sorry to hear him say that, because I carried on booking Rick's band as well after the jam stood up. So. <laughs> I've stitched him right up there. <laughs> I have words about that, yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting, actually, when I, when I think about it. The length of time, really, that the jam were producing records for, so 77 to 82, is pretty much the length of time it takes Adele to release an album. But they've left such an amazing legacy, and so many fans talk about their music and, and what it means to them to this day. What did it mean to you being part of the jam mix? Because we're talking about the style council well solo in a set, but what did it mean to you being part of that mix? Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, it's probably the time that I will remember the clearest. It was very vivid. It was the work ethic. When you talk about Paul Weller, 
certainly through my experience of working with him, is the work ethic. Paul didn't want to piss about. It, it was just work. You know, you go in, like you clock in, you do your time, and you probably don't clock out till late. But I mean, just work, work, work. I mean, the sheer volume of shows that the jam did was just phenomenal. And then when we ran out of places that were big enough to play in one night, we'd play two nights there, you know, in these weird Birmingham Bingley halls and D-side leisure centres and uh, that equestrian centre in Braintree and all these funny places, you know, and Cromer, of course. And then when it wasn't, you know, touring season, when it was, um, you know, touring would be in the spring and in the autumn normally. So then, of course, they'd want to do the seaside tours, which again were bloody hilarious, you know. I mean, half of the places we played, you know, Wigan Pier sounded like a seaside resort. And we all know that Wigan is quite a long way away from the sea, right? <laughs> Swindon Oasis, which sounded kind of like seaside-y, but um, I wrote into a contract there just to see if anyone was paying any attention to all the verbiage I was putting into contracts, saying very officially it was agreed and understood that the promoter will arrange for all of the taps in the venue to be turned on at least 48 hours prior to the performance and 27 tons of sharp sand deposited in front of the venue to create a seaside atmosphere. Nobody even questioned it. They didn't do it, of course, but they didn't. Nobody called me and went, boy, what's this? You know. <laughs> But you're right. I mean, they didn't stop. And um, I mean, those those gigs always had like, nice catchy titles in terms of the types of tour it was as well, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Bucket and Spade tour and all that sort of stuff, you know. I mean, yeah. wonderful characters involved in this whole thing. You know, you've got, it's not just Paul and Rick and Bruce and John and Anne and Nikki and Kenny and all of that crowd, you know. But you also had people like Tony Gibney, Mono. It was deaf in one ear, so it was known as Mono, right? You know, it makes sense, doesn't it? And you had the wonderful Joe Awomi, who was a, um, I think it was Commonwealth Gold heavyweight boxer. Yeah, John was quite keen on recruiting people by the pound, you know, so uh, you had rather large people. <laughs> <laughs> And lovely and all really funny, you know. Somebody else remarks on the fact that it was a very hairy crew. There was <laughs> a big hairy crew was how somebody called it, I think, at one point on the podcast. Yeah, it was, it, was, <laughs> there was a fair amount. You had Dave Little and uh, with the hair and the beard, not at all what you'd expect, but... Um, Yes, no, and also the other thing with the jam was the live shows, man. I mean, they were just electric to be at, you know. I mean, I'd always be somewhere safe, you know, hiding under a staircase or something like that, uh, just to see the way the audience reacted and the sheer energy that was generated in a room. It, was just phenomenal. And so many people talk about that. The So when the split came, was it a surprise for you? And what was your reaction, both in terms of somebody who's in the mix, but also somebody who's you know, earning money well, from this, booking people, you know? Shock and horror, really. I mean, you, you know, I think it's well known that it was um, at the peak of the jam's success. And suddenly I found out that this was going to be the last tour we were doing, which ended up Brighton Conference Centre, which was a weird night. I went down for it. My memory of that, I don't remember much about the gig. I remember trying to get in because the whole venue was surrounded by fans, you know, at all the entrances trying to get in. 
I was right at the back being polite. Suddenly this great big hand reached, seemed to reach over the heads of all the people and pick me up, felt like by the neck and lift me over a breeze. It was Joe Awomi. It just picked me up and literally pulled me off the ground and carried me into the venue. And then the only thing I remember was straight after the gig, you know, seeing the band come off stage and going back. And then we were on this staircase and just, I think it was the expressions on the, the three of their, their faces was just like, that's it then, you know. And it was, it was sad, you know, because we had no idea what was going to happen next. It wasn't like, oh, well, of course, then there'll be the Style Council, which will be a huge success. As far as we were concerned, that was the end of it, you know. And to be honest, nobody, myself included, knew whether it would be Paul or Rick or Bruce who managed to do anything else afterwards. We didn't know that. And in fact, a lot of the money was on Bruce because he's the good-looking one, and he had that single called Freak that came out and everything. So, yeah, I mean, I was I was actually booking dates for him and for Rick with Time UK, even if Rick didn't think it was as well-oiled as the jam, but there you go, what can you do? It's a bit smaller. And with Paul. And the Style Council comes around pretty quickly, and when it does, straight away pulls off to Europe and you're booking dates over over there. I mean, I've been, I've been looking, knowing I had to do this and having a zero memory of exactly what we, we did and it looks like we did that but I think you know, generally the thing with the Style Council which by the way was almost called the Torch Society I don't know how close it came to being one or the other though I'm not sure it was one or the other I know that we started it very cautiously because nobody was making any sort of expectations that you know Paul Weller with the Style Council would be instantly as big as the jam or anything and we thought the opposite would be true so we better start really carefully do some trial gigs out of the way and whatever we did in the uk we would um err on the on the small side and build it up again but you know a bit like the jam i mean the the jam went from red cow to playing the biggest venues that then existed in in the uk inside a couple of years. And the same thing, you know, happened with the Star Council. It became pretty clear what was going to happen. I mean, it was a funny thing because it wasn't, I think some people might see it as being this massive transition from the style of the jam, because you think about the early days, the jam, very raw, very punk, you know, lots of gobbing and bouncing up and down and stuff. And then you think of the Star Council with the white trousers and the jumpers over the shoulders and everything else. And, and it wasn't really like that because at the end of the jam, already, you know, brass sections were coming in and stuff like that. And so moving on to the Star Council was, I mean, it was obviously a shift, but it wasn't as massive a gulf between the two as I think people would imagine you know and even the look of it paul was already wearing the fred perry and and things like that they'd moved away from those suits that didn't fit these sorts of <laughs> yeah well, thank 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 god yeah the suits that didn't no i should i came to like those suits eventually i got it i did get it eventually it was just well obviously i did but you know it was a question of starting all over again with the star but within a couple of years you're playing wembley arena and doing you know three nights in a row at wembley arena so it moves to those bigger venues quite quickly then yeah i mean i really like the star castle i love the music Again, a lovely crowd of people, different crowd of people, but it's easy to, you know, with people like Mick Talbot, who's like a real diamond, and Stevie White, who's still a chum, and we still stay in, in touch, you know. He's a lovely bloke. All of them, Jay and Helen and DC Lee and all that sort of crowd. And it was, uh, and what's his name? God, 
He used to be called the FA Cup because of his ears stuck out. He played the bong move. But, um, Steve? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the other Steve, is that? Yes, the other Steve. Yes, you're right. Yeah. yeah. If you just have a drum called Steve, it makes it easier, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lovely, lovely crowd of people. And again, we had uh, a lot of adventures. There's one I have to ask you about because this was in Dennis Monday's autobiography. I don't know if you remember yeah. this. This was Amsterdam and you stayed at the Akura Hotel. Does this ring any bells? Not, but carry on. Tell me what happened. So the bar closes, and you, for some reason, invite everyone back to your room when the bar closes. Oh shit! Yes, I remember. (laughs) 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 Oh, talk about being naive. Pick up the story, God. Well, this is the agent trying to be sort of, uh, hey, I'm here and what have you, you know, because you're a complete hanger on. I mean, all the stuff that the agent does is done like months beforehand. By the time the gig comes around, you're just a spare part hanging around backstage with a laminate around your neck trying to look important because there's nothing for you to do, you know. So, um, I thought, hey, I'll just invite everybody back to my place for a uh, for a drink, you know. And they cleaned out the mini bar. I mean, completely. It left me with a bill of like, now it would be thousands, you know. Yes. So thanks for the memory, Dennis. That was uh, yeah, <laughs> I remember that. yeah, yeah. Well, he said, I think in his autobiography, he says that they then moved to his room, drank all of that too. And then there was shaving foam involved and all sorts. It really <laughs> didn't get quite messy. Again, I've got to be careful what I say, but I think if you take it that alcohol played a fair part in a lot of the stuff that was going on. I mean, no naughtiness in terms of throwing televisions out of windows or anything like that, but uh, a lot of bars in a lot of towns around the world and a lot of very funny stuff that happened as a result, probably that I shouldn't go into. And a lot of relationships formed as well. You mentioned John Weller. Paul's dad, Paul's manager. We should also mention Ann Weller as well, and Nikki, actually. The Weller family was such an important part of the mix for the jam, the Star Council solo, wasn't it? But it'd be lovely to understand about those relationships and how important they were to this right from the jam, right the way through to Paul's solo career. John Weller is probably one of the most important people in my life. I absolutely loved him, you know. I mean, John and I couldn't have been more opposite, I suppose. I mean, I'm the ex-public school university chap with the little briefcase and the jacket and everything else. And John was like a sort of a lovely mixture of um, Del Boy and uh, Ronnie Barker in Open All Hours, you know, probably more Ronnie Barker in Open All Hours. You know, you wouldn't have thought that we'd have got on. But yeah, we really did. John didn't have any time for nonsense. Neither did Paul. It's like, absolutely, you don't talk about, you know. And really, if your name wasn't Weller, then you didn't really count as anything, if you see what I mean. You were very disposable, you know. I'm probably wrong, but I always thought I was kind of like an honorary Weller in a funny sort of way, you know. And I remember I'd call up to speak to John at home and would answer the phone and go, John, it's your only friend. And that was, uh... Brilliant. So when... Uh... When John died and I sent some flowers, I mean, we'd fallen out before that. That's at the end of the story. But And I put, you know, from your only friend. And probably people looked at that and thought, you arrogant little tosser. But that was that was the joke. Nice. You have to say that John came into the music business knowing nothing about it. You know, his qualifications to being a, a music manager was being Paul's dad. His sheer energy and determination to push and push and push and push and stand behind Paul, whatever happened, you know, was just legendary. As a sort of a, a power behind the whole thing, that was the engine room. It was John in the background pushing every gig, you know, turning up 
absolutely every gig. And that's important for the story later, in fact. But it was the thing for John was getting out on the road, sampling the bars and the restaurants and stuff like that, looking after Paul every night. You know, he'd be on this little um, flight case on the side of the stage sitting there with his leather jacket and his white hair all swept back and everything. I mean, I mean, loved him, you know, I mean, he's absolutely smashing bloke, you know, I have a huge debt of gratitude to not just Paul, but to John as well. Yeah. Cause so much stuff that happened to me wouldn't have happened if it hadn't have been for their loyalty. You mentioned about John being this kind of driving force. That definitely is the case when you read everything about the Star Council finishing and Paul getting back on the road as a solo artist. It felt like, from everything I read, it feels like it was John going to Paul, you know, we need to get back on the road some. We need to do this. We need to earn some money, essentially. What was your role in getting that working in terms of the solo career? Because some of those venues were back to the really small ones and you're working out from the ground again, aren't you? Well, yeah, it was it was starting over again. Yeah, because, I mean, the Star Council, I'm, I'm looking back on it. I mean, we were going off to places like Australia, which was hilarious, and uh, Japan, which was also hilarious. And we were doing big, big shows over there and in different parts of Europe as well. So it wasn't just, a, again, a UK-centric thing. You know, the jam broke into some markets around the rest of the world. Then the Star Castle broke into some of the same markets, but also other ones and previous ones that were big didn't do so well. So it was always this thing of pushing into the new areas. So when Paul started, it was kind of like history repeating itself. And you think, well, that really is it because, you know, you get lucky and you have the jam and then the Star Castle. But I mean, it can't happen again. You know, I mean, nobody who has three different careers as yeah, a I can't think. Yeah, you're right. Can't think of any. Yeah. It was a very strange time. I don't have as much memory of that as other stuff. I remember Paul inviting me down to the studio to hear the new album. And Paul could be an intimidating fucker as you know, he'd sit right next to you and, and to make sure you're paying attention to every single song and then go right. What do you think? Don't hold back to say exactly what's on it. And it's like, bloody hell. And, <laughs> and you try to think of anything. I'm not a music critic. I don't know. You know, it sounded very nice. You know, It's also the fact that like every creative asks for feedback, right? But then at the same time, none of them want to hear feedback. <laughs> it's that, you know, you're right. But I mean, luckily it was really good, but I mean, I couldn't sit there. I mean, again, I've, I'm amazed. Maybe there are people out there who will hear a piece of music and think, yeah, that, that's going to be huge. I mean, I never could. I couldn't listen to um, Paul's new stuff and go, yeah, that's going to be huge. Any more than, you know, John used to, back in the days of the jam, would come around with a little cassette and put it into our office stereo to play me the new single. And each one seemed to get more and more unpalatable to the point where he came in with one that I just thought, well, this has just gone too far. There's no way this is going to happen. How can you have a song that goes, eat and rifles, eat and rifles? And, and of course... It's really interesting because this is 91, 92. And the first Paul Weller back on top of the pops was our whole year, 1992. And I watched it the other day. And when you look at the, the charts at the time, everything else was ironically house music given the style council's demise a few years before ironically it's all that music and even then it seems to what paul was doing seems to stick out as something different so you're right it's not like you could kind of go well this is gonna be a massive chart success nobody at that point could go you know wildwood and stanley road and paul was going to be back on top but again it happened really quickly didn't it within three four five years you're playing hyde park for christ's sake again i'm not any kind of rock and roll historian and you got to remember that for me it was i was just sitting in my office doing my thing and booking shows 
shows, you know, and trying to make sure I didn't get the dates wrong or something. You know. But the biggie that happened in the 90s was the whole Britpop thing and Blur and Oasis. I don't know, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but as I recall it, when Oasis took off, they and several other bands started to quote Paul as being their inspiration. So it's almost like people are giving each other a leg up, you know, mm-hmm. so... And then that whole Britpop thing happened, which kind of tied in with what Paul was was doing. You know, it was very sort of uh, Beatlesy in a funny sort of way, wasn't it? You know, and yeah, suddenly again we're catapulted into the uh, into the limelight. You know, and at that point, playing bigger venues than he's ever played. I know they've done like Glastonbury Festival and things like that before, but some of the venues that you're having to book again, you're, it seems like you're having to think on your feet in terms of where to put him. But it kind of climbs really quickly to those bigger venues, doesn't it? Yeah, it did. I mean, if you think about it, each time we sort of with the jam with the Star Council and with Paul's thing, we kind of started at the bottom again and wound up. I'm saying our is. <laughs> <laughs> You're part of the well, mix, but I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that. So again, starting off cautiously, and then um, suddenly again, within a couple of years, you're back there again. I think a lot of the venues we were playing were the same, because I don't think even in the 90s you had a lot of the... You had some of the arenas were appearing, but I don't think there were that many. Like So again, we were down to Bridlington Spas and Blackpool <laughs> Tower Ballroom and not the equestrian centre in Braintree, I'm pleased to say. I don't think we had to do that. There were a few but, things at that time. There was like um, Finsley Park was suddenly became like a venue, didn't it? And I think hmm. Paul, Paul did there and even probably, and this was probably late 90s, but like things like Crystal Palace and stuff. You know, suddenly oh, yeah. The Crystal Palace um, in the old bowl with the lake in front of it. Yeah, yeah. That, that was really nice. And we did the Phoenix Festival where uh, Vince Power put on. And that was just a little side note. I'm watching the show from the, the mixer desk and right behind the stage, there was Jupiter shining immediately over the stage at the moment that that comet Schumacher Levy was smacking into it. So it was quite a, I was kind of pissed off. I wasn't somewhere else watching it with a telescope. <laughs> There you go. And so throughout that period, and you're there right through to Studio 150, what would highlights be from your point of view in terms of Paul's solo career, whether it's the music or, or like you said, booking the venues, you know, seeing this rise again? To be honest, it's more of the same. I mean, the insanity carried on exactly the same. I mean, it, it was the same crew. You've got John and Paul and Kenny and all that sort of crowd and all the stuff is going on, you know. So I always remember the bits that go wrong. If you've noticed that, it's always... <laughs> you're right. You're right. Yes. One of my fondest memories was the V Festival and I think it was in their second year that Stuart Compass and Dennis Desmond had put this V Festival thing together they booked Paul and it was like a sort of co-headlining thing I think with Richard Ashcroft who'd just come out of the Verve and, and what have you big old festival loads and thousands thousands of people out there and stuff and Paul went on and did a blistering set I mean it was you know really really classic stuff and then right at the end of it they were running out of time because there was a time slot you have to play in and after that you've got to have the next act on so you've got Richard Ashcroft's people sort of jumping up and down looking at their watches and what have you you know at which point Paul decides to invite 
Noel Gallagher up to appear, right? So Noel walks out there and the crowd go, hooray, you know. But in the meantime, on the side of the stage, there's this massive ruckus going on because Richard Ashcroft's people do not want this to happen. They want Paul off. So Paul starts to either introduce Noel or something like, like that. And then this stage manager comes rushing on with his headphones on and everything, blah, 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 in Paul's ear and basically pulls them off the stage. So then you've got this spectacle of Paul and Noel raising their guitars aloft like a ray and marching off the stage again. Noel not having played a note, not having <laughs> unceremoniously ejected from the, the stage. And then coming down the ramp back towards the dressing rooms again, Noel was asking Paul, so what was the problem there? And he said, well, you know, we were overrunning. There would have been a penalty, like a you know, the, the promoters would have had to pay extra money if they overran their curfew. And Noel came out with this classic line. He was dead serious. He said, well, I've got my credit card. Have you got yours? You know, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Whatever it is, we'll pay it. But anyway, didn't happen. That was a lovely moment. So never got to play a note. <laughs> no, it's that sort of defiance. Again, you, in my experience, anybody who ever doubts whether an artist that they follow is what they seem to be in the public eye, as far as Paul Weller's concerned, you know, it's like it's what it says on the tin. You know, Paul is exactly that. You know, no nonsense, like fierce principles and absolute determination cases for example with the star council we were playing a gig in japan in osaka i'm going to keep this reasonably short but in japan at the time the security barrier was a rope with a bloke on one end and another bloke on the other end and the japanese audience did not cross it right and you couldn't even get them to stand up they'd probably stay seated clap very politely and stuff like this so star council were playing this blistering show in this concert hall which was on a rake and you could see the audience was standing up and the promoter was saying to me this is getting a bit dangerous we need to try to get them calmed down because they could just go at any minute you know it's like when they reach a certain point then suddenly it goes into an avalanche so somebody went on stage and said to Paul look you know watch it because they're getting a bit overexcited Paul came out with his classic line of when I see panic I'll panic five minutes later the entire audience it was like a, a avalanche of humanity just poured onto the stage. Seriously, just wallop like this. Suddenly we're up to our ass, they're trying to play, and all the audience are running around frantically backstage everywhere on the stage, completely off their trolleys. And it was uh, evacuation time. So it was rush out the back door, pile everybody quickly onto a coach and took off down the street with half the audience chasing the coach down the, the road, laughing like idiots. Promoter got banned from playing in Osaka ever again, and um, that's what you're dealing with, you know. It's not something that anybody else should, should ever go, oh, well, he did that, we should do no, that. No. It's not a good idea, but we did, and we got away with it. But yeah. It's amazing when you think about it. So the time of release of this podcast, the band have literally just gone into Black Barn. They're in rehearsals right now for the next tour, the next UK tour. It's incredible to think here we are 45 years on from signing that first record deal with Polydor, those first Cowbell live dates that we talked about with the jam still performing live still smashing it still performing new material as well to the public it's extraordinary isn't it it's I mean, it is phenomenal you know yeah. i never quite got why the rest of the world never really saw that it's funny because while looking back through some of the stuff that we did with you know, for paul's solo stuff and it was all still pretty uk centric i mean we did some forays into europe played some more festivals i think than we'd probably played before but you know it was kind of token and it wasn't that big it was kind of thousand to two thousand capacity 
type things that we were doing in our own right, you know. And yet in England, uh, sorry, in Britain, then uh, it had all gone through the through the roof. I suppose, you know, when you say Britpop, and you've got to bring that in there somewhere because it definitely was a factor. The clue is in the name, I guess, you know, it's Brit. But I was also realising that, and I'd never thought about this before, but in fact, different phases of Paul's career also tied in with what I was doing at the time, because if the jam was cowbell time, which we talked about, and then the Star Council in the 80s was pretty well after I managed to end up as one of the people co-running the place to get it turned into world service, which I thought was a smarter name. It's probably equally stupid. I remember John didn't like it very much. You know? World service, what's that? You know? And then, of course, with Paul's solo stuff, it was uh, the Mighty Primary, where we'd formed this sort of, at the time, mega agency. And um, with computers, we actually had computers, you know. <laughs> I don't know how you, I was talking to Kenny Wheeler. I, I got I, lucky enough to get invited over to his place a couple of months back. And I had, yeah, for some reason, you kind of, and Tracy Young was saying this, so like, you kind of transport how we do things now back to those days. So in right. my head, Everything was all emails, and, and it's, yeah. like, it's like, no, of course not. There weren't even mobile phones. How you did this like with post-it notes and whatever? I don't know. I mean, we didn't have post-it notes. That was <laughs> well, yeah, that would have been. That? that was the future. <laughs> I mean, if you take it that when we started, then we had telex machine. So you had a telex operator in Cowbell, and you'd have phones. So as an agent, you'd learn to speed dial to really twist that dial really quickly. And to look busy on the phone all the time, you know. And then everything you sent out was typed up by somebody and sent out as a, a letter. It wasn't on our telex, you know. And it was really only late 80s, I think, that uh, Chris Parry persuaded me to get a fax machine. And I pointed out, you're the only person I know who's got one. So... <laughs> So when primary started in 1990, and that tied in, as I said, with Paul doing his solo stuff, yeah, we were very high tech, having this sort of dumb terminals on everyone's desks and databases and stuff like that. I haven't got a clue how to use them, but they look great. I mean, and a really important roster again there for you in terms of, and the lineup on that agency was was huge as well, wasn't it? Again, this is a little bit sort of agent history. Agency up to that point had been very boutique-y, so the, the rosters were quite small. And um, I'm that's a longer story to do with me and my relationship with Chrysalis and the fact that they were going public. And I didn't particularly think that rock and roll belonged in a PLC. And there's all sorts of stuff that probably I shouldn't talk about around that that time but it ended up with us merging world service with another agency called station agency which was run by a chap called steve hedges who you know were handling simple minds and simply red and genesis and phil collins and peter gabriel and depeche mode and what have you we were quite advanced i suppose because we pulled in what we call a dance department uh, a guy who had some djs and stuff so he'd sit there doing whatever he did, which was a mystery to the rest of us with the stuff, you know. And uh, that was the start of primary, which is still going and uh, and doing really well. I actually resigned for, as being the uh, managing director, oddly enough, just after everything had finished with Paul and John. And it's strange because I always told them that the day that that fell apart, I would pack it in. And I did, although 
Luckily enough for me, certain people like Peter Gabriel and The Cure, I've uh, continued to work with uh, on a sort of consultancy basis. So, and that was back in what, 2005, something like that, I guess, you know. Yeah, so right up to Studio 150. And you mentioned earlier on that kind of relationship coming to an end, or was it a falling out? How did that, that finish? Oh, blimey. That's the sad bit. Yeah, we'll deal with the sad bit and then we'll talk about some funnier stuff, right? But um, so I think the background to that was that I mentioned, oh, geez, this is tricky. I mentioned before John's dedication to Paul and wanting to be on all the shows and sit on his flight case and count his cash and all that sort of stuff and play poker. You could be in the most beautiful part of the world with fantastic scenery or something. You'd find John downstairs with Kenny and playing poker and basically robbing the all the uh, the pedeums off the crew before he could even pay them. <laughs> yeah, Kenny mentioned that. Yeah, at the end of the tour, they'd all end up owning money. You know, but that was that was very much the game for John. And I think it's fair to say that flying was never very popular with any of the incarnations of the Weller whatever. We had several comic cuts trying to like, okay, so you're on tour in Australia with the Style Council. Somehow they managed to get themselves by plane down to Australia, although apparently arriving with blankets over their heads and stuff and really not wanting to see any of it. Didn't like it. But then we had to go from Melbourne to Sydney. And I tried to explain that the plane would be the same sort of plane. It would. It wasn't going to be like the, um, what do they call it? Is it the Bush Doctor or what? You know what I mean? Like something yeah, like yeah, the yeah, yeah. goggles and stuff like that. It was going to be a 747 and the same plane that, been flying down it but no they wouldn't have it so they insisted on um, getting a train so the promoter arranged three special pullman carriage carriages for us on this train that wound its way through the the outback from melbourne to sydney and there is nothing to look at by the way for like <laughs> 19 hours or something we had a sort of a an old 60s or whatever pullman type thing with nice big armchairs in it and stuff and then there was in between there was a car a carriage that was devoted to be like a gigging a jamming space so they'd arranged a little drum kit and tambourines and maracas and some guitars and stuff like that it was like something out of um hard day's night you know? <laughs> yeah. the Beatles are in the baggage carriage or something like that and so we sat on this Bloody train for about 19 hours, watching nothing, going going past by the windows, sitting there playing appallingly badly in this um, special carriage. You know? And so, yeah, the flying wasn't very good. And as John was getting older, his liking of the idea of jumping on planes to go off and do foreign shows, we kind of ended up in a situation, I think it's unfair to say, where the forays outside of the UK were anywhere that you could get to in a coach without too many hours on the coach, moving a lot into Northern Europe. So there wasn't the same sort of um, push there, I guess. I think around that time, I think it was in the early 2000s, and I don't know if you got this thing, when Paul started doing his solo acoustic stuff. Days of Speed, which I loved, actually. I thought it was shows. They were fabulous. Yeah, yeah, they really were. And it was a blistering idea because it meant that you could go off and play in similar sort of capacities to what we've been doing, which, as I said, weren't huge in, in Europe, you know, 1,000, 2,000 or something, just with Paul and a guitar, much smaller crew, no band or anything else. And those were really stonking shows, you know. 
And it sounds weird. It's a guy with an acoustic guitar, but they were really uh, powerful. You know, it's interesting you say that actually because Kenny, after as I was about to leave Kenny Wheeler's house, this was not recorded on the podcast because I packed on my gear up. He said, um, "Do you know what? Thinking about it, one of my favourite tours was the Days of Speed tour." And when I asked him why, he was saying because actually it was back to you know it's basically it's him, Paul, John, and it was that, such a tight, small crew. And he was like, yeah. "I loved that. It was my mates, and we were just having a laugh." Yeah, it was, and and yet it was a really good way to. Uh, to tour. I mean, I think we're talking about the sad bit about how the whole mm. thing kind of ground to a halt with me. And, and this is something I've got to be very careful how I, I talk about it. But look, the reality is, as we all know, it wasn't that much later that John died. And it became very clear to me that he wasn't well. It got to the point where, oh, cool, this is horrible. But it, the memory was starting to go. So the, the trouble was, my job as an agent was to represent the artist for live shows, build up a relationship with the promoters and keep pushing, pushing, pushing and trying to plan and manipulate and what have you, pull into the very best situations. The problem I was finding was that John would forget the stuff that we'd agreed to, to do. And so it came to the point where, you know, we obviously we had email and stuff like that by then, but none of that was stuff that was being used. So I would be sending John a weekly letter, an actual sort of letter called John's Mailbag. That's right. A little logo for it and everything. John's Mailbag. <laughs> and write down all the stuff that we'd agreed. But sadly, a lot of it didn't get read either. So we hit a point where John clearly wasn't very well, uh, where stuff that we'd agreed was being forgotten about and denied. There was a festival in Spain, Benny Cassim Festival, that Paul was due to play. And John had no recollection of having agreed to it and got quite uh, angry about it. You know, I think also it was we had a meeting with myself and John and Paul and a guy from the record company. Sorry, guy from the record company, but I can't remember who you were. There you go in our meeting room at the agency. And um, we were talking about, you know, which way forward for Paul internationally. And I was ventured the idea, well, yeah, but, you know, if we did the, the, the solo acoustic shows, that would make it, it would be very flexible. We could, you know, go further out into the world and pop over to here and do this and pop over there. And I think it was the word popping over that wound John up because before I knew it, he'd uh, got up and walked out of the, the meeting very upset. And with me following him to the lift going, you okay, mate? You know, and after that, it kind of went down, downhill. And the problem was I was trying to talk to Paul about it, but John didn't like the idea of, he felt that you were going over his head if you went uh, and spoke to Paul directly. So that didn't work. Eventually, I had to actually down tools and, and stop because I couldn't do my job and commit promoters to lots and lots of money, booking halls and doing advertising campaigns and stuff like that, if there was a very strong chance that the show wasn't going to happen. And it was like that, obviously, after that that whole relationship came to an end, which was incredibly sad. And I did pack in my job as the MD of, uh, of primary. And then it was after that, it was when uh, John died. And, you know, I miss him so much. I still have dreams about him, you know. I mean, really, I've said before, but a really important figure in my life. And I loved him to bits. Yeah, it was really 
very, very sad. But there you go. You know, we had um, nearly three decades and three different careers. So I'm not complaining. And that love of John comes through on this chat that we've had that definitely comes across in the conversation. You mentioned some fun stories as well. How rock and roll did it get? You read about other bands, people living in the chaos on tour and liking that lifestyle and stuff. Was it mainly the booze that was the thing and people kind of, you know, just staying up all hours? It's funny because, you know, Rick's comment about it being a well-oiled machine. And it was weird because when you looked at the characters that were involved in it, you'd think you couldn't organise a piss-up in a brewery. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was like the the SAS team going into different countries and just putting these shows together and it would just happen. And you think, I have no idea how this is happening because it's not like the top flight music business people that you get with the Pink Floyd tours and the whatever. Um, Because it feels like so many of you had to be making up as you went along because there's that experience isn't there, certainly from the very early days. So you say, John had no background in music management at all, but so, and Kenny likewise, it's, you know, so it's, you're just winging it to a certain extent, are you? Yes, I suppose so. It really was kind of John and me sitting back and trying to work out what to do next with him saying, oh, we could slip a couple of gigs in there, mate, couldn't we? You know, and how about this son? We could do that. And how about we pop off and do this festival or what have you, you know? So it was pushing all the time, just gig, 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 you know, with Paul having this, like I said before, this, this work ethic, just to sort of do it, just have it, you know, Paul and the expression, having it large, that's, that's Paul does not fuck about, you know, he would just go for a broke, you know, Oh God, I can't tell you. I mean, I can't. You I literally can't, can't tell. tell. Yeah. I can't, literally can't tell you the images that are going through my mind at the moment. But no, you'd have to imagine. And yet, you know, gigs come around. Everybody's there. Nobody's falling over. It's really brilliant shows. Really intense, and uh, and it worked. You know, I do remember one occasion of uh, being on a show in. Germany. Oh God, I mean, sorry. You see, I say that and then suddenly all these other things come back to me. But I remember John was a great one for white Russians, right? Uh, which I'm not even sure what the hell it is, but it's a drink with cream and alcohol in it. I think it's vodka. Right? It sounds revolting. Yeah. Uh, so he was big on white Russians. And if you went out, in, if you went off on a, into a bar, so I just thought about our Beano trip to Eastbourne, which was a whole other story. Oh, no. Yeah, anyway, if you made the mistake of going into a bar with any of the Weller crew, then you probably were stuck there. And they might as well have held you down and put a funnel in your mouth and poured white Russians down it. I mean, you had no no choice. Otherwise, it was get it down, you fucking lightweight. You know, it was that. So it was, oh, okay. So I'm in this bar with John and everyone's been reasonably well behaved, but really knocking it back. And the rest of gradually, everybody else had left the, the bar. Paul had gone. Nicky had gone. I think Kenny had given up and gone as well, even. And normally he was the last man standing to look after Paul. There's just me and John in the bar. He'd been serving me white Russians all night. And what he didn't know is I'd literally been tipping them into this plant pot that was next to me on the bar when he wasn't looking, right? So then, oh, you're empty. I'll fill it up again, you know. So I was stone, stone cold sober. Everybody else was completely gone. John, I'd get off his stool. So I had to sort of help him off his stool. And we actually ended up walking across the hotel lobby with John's arm wrapped around my neck, sort of supporting him, trying to look as if we we're just being pally in case there were any CCTV cameras watching us, you know. Got him up to um, the corridor where his room was in time to see another member of the Weller family who I won't mention, flat on the person's back with just the head and torso sticking out of their bedroom door into the corridor and being inched by an invisible force back into the 
the room. As I come by with, with John draped round my shoulder, Paul has got this person's ankles and he's pulling them into the room. And as I go past, he goes, what a fucking family. <laughs> At which point we tried to put John on his bed and he sort of bounced straight up again, ready to start, start fighting anybody who just thrown him into his bed. You know, it's like, okay, just go to sleep, mate. And that was, that was kind of like a typical, don't ever go into a bar with, uh, with a weller. It's a- <laughs> Live music right now seems to be in a, in a weird kind of situation because, you know, Brexit, the impacts of COVID, it seems like a really challenging time for people who are working in the live music industry right now. Yeah, the last couple of years have been a total nightmare. Brexit was a total bloody nightmare as well. And, um, and then with the COVID thing, um, obviously there's been a lot of casualties. We've lost a lot of, I don't mean who died with COVID, although obviously we've had that, but a lot of people who, uh, were reliant on the business carrying on for their income. So road crew, uh, all the production companies, the trucking companies, you know, it's not just about the artists, it's about that massive pyramid of, of support operations, the caterers, I mean, and the venues, you know, huge pile of people that the artist kind of, that's invisible, that the artist sits on top of, but take away any of them and none of it could happen. We've lost so many people and, you know, people are sort of forgetting what their job was. It's like a lot of people I've spoken to suddenly having to work again, thinking, hang on, how do I do this? You know, <laughs> how do you run a catering company? How do you operate a venue? I mean, that's, that's not easy. There's a lot of people involved in running a venue that are very, it's a really sort of hardened, um, finely honed team of people. And, you know, you get out of the groove. So that, that's been really tough. Perversely enough for me personally, I've spent the last year preparing a, a cure tour that's been announced now around Europe. And it's the biggest tour I've ever Done. I think it's about 550,000 people or something on wow, wow. You know, 45 dates. And a lot of them are sold out already all within a couple of weeks. So, but I know that, you know, for other people that haven't been so lucky, I mean, The Cure have this phenomenal fan base to uh, build on. And for other people, certainly people, I think, who are not quite as established the attempts to tour the cancellations the postponements the reluctance from the public to commit money to a show they're not sure it's going to happen or not you know has really made a dent and the festivals you know because the festivals have become the main meat and drink of the live business but you know a couple of years without the festivals still having their bills to pay and their teams to keep on you know it's been it's been savage but hopefully crossing fingers we're coming to the end of it and we can start to have some fun again you know well fingers crossed I mean, I've, you know, where I can I've been over the past year getting back into those gigs again and there's something so special about live music as much as you know as much as getting a new album and buying that on release day being in the you know in with a crowd that social aspects of enjoying the music that you love is such a special thing isn't it it is from the, the audience's point of view although honestly I think I still prefer the days when you go into a, a gig with sticky carpets from all the beer that have been spilled and sweat dripping off the ceiling and full of smoke. And now you go into these immaculate, modern American built arenas and you can't smoke and the beer's warm and paper cups. You know what I mean? I don't think it's as much fun. And certainly the business isn't anything like as much fun as now that it's gone, it's become very corporate. So much emphasis on the share value or what CEOs move from what conglomeration to another corporation and all this kind of stuff. You know, when we started and we're talking, 
talking about the days of the jam, and we didn't even know where places were in Europe, let alone who to call up, you know, and just winging it as we went along with the jam heading off to Scandinavia with like a year's supply of baked beans because I didn't know what the food was going to be like then, you know? And now it's very kind of, yeah, it's even more well-oiled than it ever was, but it's not quite as exciting. Martin, it's been so fabulous spending time with you for this podcast. I have two final questions before you go. The first one, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. Now I should say people what, what happened then. Whilst I was asking that question, Martin paused for a moment to light a cigarette and uh, <laughs> the look of panic in his eyes. So yeah, you're allowed one song from Weller. What are you going to go with? That's completely unfair. I mean, if you... If you why don't you pick a group that's had no hits? <laughs> yeah, that'd one. Be easier. One hit wonder. Terence Trent Derby, yeah. <laughs> uh, Wildwood. Wildwood. Why that song? Uh, because I can play it on the guitar and because Paul showed me the chords. Ah, oh, amazing. <laughs> Nobody knows what those chords are. But I know what they are. That's so good. I love it. Final question. So the purpose of this podcast, Martin, is not least to talk to amazing people like yourself who've had these fabulous careers, these amazing connections with Paul and, and the Weller crew and all that. But it's for me to be able to interview Paul Weller, the interview I never managed to get in my radio career. If it happens, what should I ask him? <laughs> Can we have a pause while lighting three other cigarettes? <laughs> um, all right. So uh, one thing is funny, isn't it? Because I don't claim that Paul is any kind of um, great seer or philosopher or, or what have you. Right? But once on a coach, I'm, I'm just pulling this at random because you've asked me and you're interviewing me. So we've got to think of something to say, haven't I? Right. Go on. <laughs> and we we're sitting on a coach once and uh, we were just getting a bit philosophical. And he said to me, uh, for me, it's all about greatness. And it's stuck in my brain. And I did actually reply at the time, well, it's dead easy for you to try to aspire to greatness because you're bloody Paul Weller. But, you know, somebody who's stacking shelves in a supermarket doesn't have quite the same opportunity to hit greatness. But it did stick with me. So I suppose my question is, uh, is that what it's still about? Not a bad answer, is it? Hey, you've got to hand it to me. That was pretty good. That was a great answer, I have to say. Um, and it's one of those things where you wonder how much of it is God-given talent, if such a thing exists, versus that work ethic thing that you talked about earlier. Right? Yes, but I mean, then anybody who just wanted to work hard enough could do the same thing. And what's missing there is the talent. It's something that... I don't know where that comes from. I don't know whether it's something that's inevitable. I don't know whether if things had been different, whether Paul would have ended up doing something else for a living, still being capable of coming out with those amazing tunes. I don't know. It's the ability to do that. And that's something which comes from God knows where, you know. Martin, this has been great. I've loved every second of this, man. Thank you so much for your time. It's been good fun, Dan. Thank you very much. It wasn't anything like as painful as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> a good You're giggle. welcome. <laughs> Very nice chatting to you. My thanks once again to Martin Hopewell. Some really, really special memories in that one. And so nice to hear about all the connections, the love for John and Paul, actually all of the Wellers and the Jam, the Star Council and the first 14, 15 years of the solo career as well. So special. Thanks so much, Martin. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please share on your social media channels and don't forget to give us a follow on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love it if you could give us a five-star review too. It really does help us to find new listeners to the show. Now, you can find me on social media as well. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I also have a website, so you can find more information about the podcast there. I do show notes and blogs and special features as well. Just go to Paul 
paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Now, next up on the podcast, as Paul and the current band lineup start rehearsals for the upcoming tour, we are joined by one of the band members. How's that for a little teaser for you? You're going to love this one, honestly. Make sure you subscribe to get it first. Up next on the podcast, I cannot wait to share this one with you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.